All right, everybody. Welcome to episode number 20 of the Blue Collar Fitness Podcast. We have a very special guest today, Dr. Drew Timmermans, all the way from Arizona. He is a expert in regenerative medicine, and we're going to be asking him all the questions you guys want to know today. Welcome, Dr. Thank uh, Timmermans. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Absolutely, man. So, you know, I think a lot of people want to know what is regenerative medicine and, and what type of, um, what type of training or, uh, education do you, you go through to, to, to get into this field and to start doing what you do? Yeah. So, uh, regenerative medicine and actually, uh, funny, the timing of us filming this just, uh, earlier this week slash late last week, Mayo clinic officially recognized regenerative medicine as a, field uh that you know within their ranks you can specialize in and and move up the ranks and become you know a professor associate professor all that type of stuff um i think the uh there's different ways to kind of look at regenerative medicine and what we're doing the ultimate goal is we are just trying to uh take things and we're trying to regenerate them to a maybe a younger state or a more healthier state the reality is, is and, and we'll, uh, I'd love to dive into this later. The reality is, is a lot of the times we're not actually doing that the way people think. I'm not injecting things and I'm turning an 80-year-old's knee into a 20-year-old's knee. Might be improving their pain, but uh, we're not reversing time uh, and the biological clock on a lot of these things. But it's just still this concept of we are trying to take somebody who's degenerative and in pain and we are trying to make them not have pain. Um, but from a uh, supportive role. So we're trying to support the tissues to actually heal as opposed to just suppressing pain with uh, steroids or surgically removing things so that way they're no longer painful because they don't exist uh, in the human body. Uh, so that, that's kind of that framework. And then the second part of your question on, uh, on, on training. So there's many different uh, ways that you can get into the uh, regenerative medicine space. Um, the My path was the naturopathic doctor route. So um, I came out here to Arizona. Uh, I did my four years of naturopathic medical school, which was after my four years of my undergraduate studies. Uh, I did a Bachelor of Science in Kinesiology uh, up in Canada. And then uh, after that, I actually did a one-year residency in uh, integrative uh, pain management and regenerative medicine. Uh, and it's one of only uh, two regenerative medicine, uh, I should say, structured regenerative medicine uh, residencies across the U.S. The other one is up in uh, the Pacific Northwest. And so uh, after, during that process, I got exposed to regenerative medicine, prolotherapy, PRP, things like that absolutely fell in love with it. Uh, and part of that was because uh, PRP actually took me out of uh, about a three year uh, ordeal with chronic back pain. Um, and nothing had worked. I did not go the surgery route, uh, just because I was trying everything before that. But uh, I was just absolutely floored that this stuff existed. Uh, and, you know, surprised, but also not surprised that it wasn't more mainstream. Um, and so that's what kind of set me down that path. But if you look in the regenerative medicine space, you're going to have uh, different disciplines also get into the regenerative injection side. Uh, most commonly, it's MDs and DOs uh, that have branched off from their uh, traditional training of uh, surgery, steroid injections, things like that. 
and then state by state, depending on where you are, um, you also might find uh, NPs, so nurse practitioners, uh, and you also might find naturopathic doctors, just depending on the state laws for the profession uh, on if they're allowed to inject into a joint or anything like that. So many paths to Rome, but I found mine. That's awesome, man. So who's uh, a, uh, I, sorry, I, I just had I just had a quick question. Um, so kind of getting a little bit more into the background of it, how how did you choose the because it, it's not it's not really a, a traditional route of medicine. You're you're kind of it's kind of uh, more research based and it's it's it's, uh, it's a little bit more. Um, some people would say out there, but it's, it's definitely benefiting a lot of, a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Um, what was, what was your decision or, or your, your, your process in deciding, uh, this route? The regenerative medicine route? Yeah. Um, uh, I've always been, uh, the type and actually, um, uh, Perry Nicholson, Stop Chasing Pain, uh, just tweeted this out like either this morning or yesterday, where he said, uh, if, it, uh, if it works, it doesn't matter if it's voodoo, it works. And that has just always kind of been my personal philosophy on health and medicine, where if, if I do something and it's beneficial, whether it's for me um, or in my past life when I was a personal trainer, if I did something and it worked for that patient, I don't need a 3000 patient randomized control trial in a clinical setting to know that it worked for that patient. Right. And so uh, you have to be careful when you're then applying statements to the general public, because that's where you do need the big data to say, okay, for knee osteoarthritis as a general whole, PRP is going to outperform steroids. Well, in order to say that you need certain things in the research to say that. But there's nothing stopping me from saying that I had this patient come in and I did this procedure and they are now better because of that, that the proofs in the pudding uh, on that for me. So as soon as it, like I saw the results in myself and then started really diving into it and shadowing doctors who did this and just hearing all these stories of patients who, you know, 20, 30, 40 years of chronic back pain and nobody does anything about it. Surgery hasn't helped. Uh, cortisone injections haven't helped. They've done physical therapy. You know, they've gone through the gamut and the doc's just like, okay, well, nothing we can do now. Here's opiates. And then they're getting these prolo injections, which is literally dextrose. It's sugar injected into different areas than the cortisone injection is, is injected into. And they're seeing improvements. And not everybody gets, you know, 100% pain free, but to actually have somebody you know, get better after 30 years of chronic pain. It's just like, you're, it's staring you in the face and you're like, how can I not do this? How can I not go down this path? So who's a, uh, who are, who's a candidate? Who's a good candidate for prolotherapy, PRP, stem cell, um, you know, the gauntlet of, you know, all that regenerative medicine has to offer. Yeah. Super, super good question. Um, uh, the way that I think about it is the uh, the people kind of in between the physical therapy and the uh, cortisone slash uh, surgery world. So right now, for example, if you go in and you got a rotator cuff tear, first thing the doc's going to do is the doc's going to send you to physical therapy. Physical therapy, uh, if that fails, then you're more than likely moving on to a steroid injection. If that steroid injection fails, then you're moving on to surgery. I personally think the sweet spot for regenerative medicine is either mixed in with the physical therapy 
or as that bridge between physical therapy and surgery. I think steroids should just be completely out of the question for 99% of the things they're used for right now in the orthopedic world. Um, there's still 1% of the time where they can be beneficial, but outside, uh, you know, of, uh, certain conditions and scenarios, I don't think they hold much benefit. Um, and so I almost see it's like, kind of like a replacement for, um, you know, for the, the steroid injections. And so the candidates are going to be people who have a, um, a more degenerative condition. So you're looking at things like tendinosis or tendinopathy, um, or ligament laxity. So they've rolled their ankle, you know, a boatload of times as a kid, as a, as a teenager. And now they've got this nagging ankle injury that they just can't ever seem to, to get ahead of. Um, our osteoarthritis conditions, um, generally on the more milder side, if we're looking at grade one, grade two, even grade three, Neo A, uh, can have pretty positive responses. When we start getting on the borderline of, okay, this is a grade four tri-compartment and they're, you know, basically lined up for knee surgery, you know, at that point, if you've gone 40 years and you haven't really taken care of your knees or found the right thing to help your knees, you might actually need that knee replacement. It might be the best thing, you know, for you. But all along that path in between, I think there's a great opportunity for these injections. So I just had uh, my both of my hips done, my SI joints, my pubic symphysis uh, two weeks ago with exosomes, stem cells, PRP, and then before that PRP. And I'm going back in in December for more PRP. Um, could you maybe explain the different types of, um, I guess, uh, lack of a better word, modalities there, yeah. uh, you know, like um, stem cells versus exosomes, who would be a good candidate for what, why are these all used um, congruently? Yeah, yeah. So, um, and I'll, I'll basically walk you through how I talk with a patient about these things when I'm going through our options. So as a general rule, um, the way that I think of these injections um, and this is, uh, we're going to take the nerve hydrodissection and perineural injections. We're going to park them off to the side for a second, but we'll mainly talk about like our, our tendons, ligaments, joint type treatments. So we kind of have these tiers. Okay. And, and the tiers come in strength. So our lowest strength, although I don't like saying lowest strength because it's still a powerful therapy, but our lowest is going to be dextrose prolotherapy. That's where we take, uh, basically it's literally dextrose. So a sugar. And we inject that into the areas that are painful, the areas that have degeneration, all those types of things. That's kind of our lowest strength. Then when we step up, we move into the uh, platelet and plasma therapy. So there's different ways that you can um, take, basically take blood, spin it down. And then from that, you can get different things. You can get leukocyte or white blood cell poor. PRP, which has certain applications, you can have white blood cell rich or leukocyte rich PRP, which has different applications. So you've kind of got this tier of uh, basically blood type therapies um, that you're getting from yourself. So it's an, what's called an autologous therapy. Then our next step up in the autologous therapy world is our stem cell therapies. That's where we're taking, where you're doing a bone marrow aspiration and we're taking your bone marrow, concentrating that down, which is going to be rich in uh, some stem cells, and then also progenitor cells, which also help in healing. Um, and then the other way is we do an adipose extraction. So basically a mini liposuction. We take that adipose, we process it, uh, we turn it into something that we can inject back into you, which again is also rich in stem cells, progenitor cells, 
uh, and different things that can be uh, beneficial. So these, uh, and, and then kind of sprinkled in with all of these are our allogeneic products. Allogeneic means it comes from a different uh, person. And so that's where you get into uh, the exosomes, you get into placental matrix, uh, Wharton's jelly, corn uh, products, amniotic fluid. I mean, there's a billion companies out there um, and most of them are crap to be honest. Um, but uh, those, um, I, we, I personally, the way I frame this up is I usually add those things into these therapies because I think they add a really huge uh, benefit to the autologous therapies, whether that's PRP, um, PRP lysate, or an actual stem cell procedure. And so um, with each, in general, if a patient is a candidate for a regenerative injection therapy, they're a candidate for any of those. I don't, there's some docs who will say, oh, you have to have PRP. You're not a candidate for prolotherapy. And, and I would actually disagree with that the majority of the time. Now, there's certain indications where it's very, very well documented that PRP just does so much better than prolotherapy. And so we would want to uh, incorporate that and use that knowledge to say, hey, you know, you have grade three uh, lateral uh, osteoarthritis of the knee, and we know that PRP is going to do way better than prolo for that. So you should probably look at doing PRP or stem cells, but they can kind of be interchanged, which is why they're interchanged. And then they just come with different strengths, uh, different invasiveness, and then obviously different costs. Makes sense. So you have uh, a lot of other alternative, um, you know, peptides, uh, different drugs that you incorporate along with the, you know, the, the measures you uh, mentioned before. Can you talk maybe about some of these other things, maybe some stuff that people haven't talked, heard about? A lot of people have heard about TB500 or Thamus and Beta 4. A lot of people have heard about BPC157. We should talk about those, but what are some, maybe some, um, some new and upcoming ones that you're interested in or some ones that maybe you've been using like the pendicin polysulfate? Yeah, so um, the BPC and, and TB4 are like a huge staple of my uh, regenerative medicine practice. And I just... Uh, they're so synergistic with everything that we're trying to do. Like it just makes absolute sense to do that. Um, the th other things that I'm uh, getting a lot more interested in as of the last six months is definitely the uh, pentacin polysulfate sodium or PPS, uh, which is basically a repurposed drug uh, that's used overseas for uh, interstitial cystitis. Um, and we're doing uh, both subcutaneous injections for patients um, who have uh, a very specific indication, which is actually bone marrow edema around uh, where they have osteoarthritis. So we're really specific on where we use that. Uh, and then we also incorporate that in with injection. So we're actually injecting that into the joint because that can have a beneficial effect uh, on the health of the, the bone and the cartilage. Um, another kind of just big concept that I'm, I've been digging a lot more into lately is this, is the idea around autophagy and uh, senolysis or the act of destroying senescent cells before we come in with these uh, big procedures. So for example, uh, actually on Friday, I have a, a pretty big bone marrow combination, bone marrow and adipose case. Um, and I started working with this patient probably about 
uh, two months ago with this idea of we started to work on different things that are going to hit at autophagy and senescence. So that way we can reduce senescent burden, which is going to allow us to actually have better clinical outcomes. Uh, one, because we're reducing the number of these senescent cells, which are inflammatory producing cells in the area that we're actually treating. So the knee, for example, but there's also research showing that we have senescent cells that accumulate in the bone marrow and in the adipose tissue. And so the, my current thought process is that if we can reduce the senescent cell burden in the adipose tissue and in the bone marrow tissue that I'm going to be re-injecting back in, then we're likely to get a better outcome because our proportion of stem cells could be a smidge higher because we've cleared out some of these other senescent cells. So that's something that I've been really uh, kind of looking uh, more into. And, and generally what we're doing with that on the autophagy front, it's fasting is going to be uh, the biggest thing. Uh, but have been playing around a little bit with the rapamycin uh, and then also the desatinib and quercetin combo uh, for uh, the senolytic activity. So one of the things Dr. Wood had me do was a prolon fast five days yeah before and that, that seems like right right there with what you're you're saying the last 100%. thing you said totally went over my head i over i understood everything else that you said you had like you had two uh two two things that working synergistically there can you say that part again the, the last sentence you said the desatinib and quercetin yes sir one? i yes. have no idea what you just said yeah so uh desatinib is a uh, a chemotherapy drug that is used uh mainly for uh leukemia um, and they, there's a clinical trial that they did uh, where they took a uh, group of patients who had uh, kidney injury, so they had chronic kidney disease, uh, and they did a three-day round of this chemotherapy drug paired with quercetin, which is just a, uh, a uh, bioflavonoid from a plant. They paired this together because there was uh, the preclinical bench side data showing that the, when used in combination, these two compounds actually triggered the uh, apoptosis or the cellular killing of these senescent cells. Uh, senescent cells uh, have been uh, in the media kind of called zombie cells. They're these cells that they don't do anything functional anymore, except they make a whole bunch of inflammation. And so one of the theories of aging incorporates this idea of senescent cells where we accumulate these over time. And as kids, actually, these senescent cells uh, have a very important role in wound healing and potentially in uh, reducing cancer. And But they accumulate as we age. And this accumulation can cause this slow rise in inflammation that we you know, now kind of call this inflammaging concept, right? Just as you age, right. you get more inflamed even if you're not doing anything different. One of the theories is that these senescent cells are at play in that. And so um, this combination of the desatinib and the quercetin, uh, they can reduce the senescent cell burden by helping to kill them, leaving healthy cells alone. And through that process, we get that reduction in inflammation. So it's the same thing you would get with fasting in basically upregulating cell autophagy, cell turnover but it's with a drug or a couple of drugs that just help you reduce inflammation and, and create healthier cells. Yeah. Um, and I, uh, it's, it's a very, very powerful approach and uh, they've not done the equivalent of 
okay, how much of a fast would you actually have to do in order to reduce senescent cell burden by, you know, a measure that you would see with the, uh, with the drug approach. But my guess is it's on the order, order, it's a high, high amount that you would have to fast in order to get at this. But yeah, at the end of the day, it gets at this, uh, this similar concept of basically just cleaning out the junk. Would that help people with arthritis? Yeah. To reduce so, inflammation? Yeah. Um, and interesting, there are uh, a lot of the age related diseases appear to have high senescent cell activity. So things like osteoarthritis have a high burden of senescent cells. And there's actually a drug right now that's in uh, phase two clinical trials where they injected it into the knee joint of patients with osteoarthritis, and they are seeing insane results in terms of actual regression of disease because they're using a drug targeted in the knee to clear up these senescent cells. So um, it's the, uh, I think the, uh, these approaches to senescent cells and the senolytics are going to kind of be the next, uh, especially in the biohacking world. I think these are going to be the next big, big things. And, um, and, and I think it's one of those things like fasting where it just touches at so many different areas of the, um, of, of health and aging that it's hard to, uh, just pinpoint and say, Oh, it's only going to help one or two things. It it can help a lot, a lot of things. So is this something that people should do every five years, every year? What's the cost? What's, what's the hoops they have to jump through to, to do this anti-inflammation? I mean, uh, don't know the answer to the first question because we just don't have the data on that. Uh, we don't have great data on, okay, after we uh, do a, uh, a round of senolytics, how quickly do they repopulate to a degree that we would want to do it again? Um, there's ideas that the older you are, the faster that is. And so maybe age plays a huge factor in this. Um, I've done two cycles now myself, um, and they both, uh, they were about, uh, five months apart, I think, or so. And the first one felt worse because you don't feel great when you're on them because these, the drug is, is rapidly killing all of these cells. And when these cells are dying, they're releasing all their junk, which you mount a small inflammatory response to. And so, um, I felt worse the first time around than the second time around. So at least in me, I know, okay, you know, after five months, uh, I, maybe I didn't um, build up as much as what I had before, but there was clearly still things there. Um, and so uh, I, I just, I don't think we have a, a good answer on, on the frequency, but with most of my patients, we're kind of hovering around a uh, every three months to one year doing that protocol, just be based off our anecdotal reports on, on kind of what we've seen with our patients. Um, cost wise, the hard part, uh, with cost. So TaylorMade, uh, has a, uh, disadded product, which is, uh, you know, a few hundred dollars, which is much more reasonably priced than if you actually just went to a regular pharmacy and got disadded, you'd be looking at about 10 K. So, um, it's, it's an injection. A, uh, it's actually an oral capsule. Oh, cool. Yeah, cool. yeah, which is nice. So um, for a few hundred bucks uh, every few months, uh, it seems to be a, a good tool for us to have with a lot of our patients, especially the ones who have these chronic degenerative conditions. I had a question about uh, like, so 
are you familiar with uh, David Sinclair? Yep. Yeah. So, so this is kind of like right up his alley with, uh, um, he, so he recommends a lot of like, uh, so like quarterly fasting, like a, a long quarterly fast or, yeah. or maybe daily intermittent fasting is, is beneficial for this. Um, what, what is your take really on, on like maybe a, a quarterly fast or maybe a, a, a weekend fast every, every month or something? I'm, I'm a big proponent of fasting from a, uh, a tool to create change in a disease process or a state of health. And then also as an anti-aging uh, and, and longevity tool. I think the um, uh, Peter Tia, it says this really, really well that, you know, we don't really have a good, uh, we don't know how to properly dose fasting to get a clinical effect. And so we kind of have these rough parameters that, you know, uh, just logically kind of makes sense in terms of, uh, you know, how intense the fast is and how frequent it is. A lot of the times I'm telling my patients that, you know, if we're doing a, a 36 hour fast, so basically you're just going one day and then you've got the sleep on both ends. If we're doing that, we could do that every one to two weeks, depending on their metabolic health, what else uh, other stressors that they have going on. And then if we are moving up into like the three day fast, maybe that's every, you know, three to four weeks. And then if we're doing a full five to seven day fast, that's kind of more like once a quarter. Mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously we can intermix our, uh, our daily time restricted feeding uh, in with that. But I, I mean, I personally think it's, it's a big, big underutilized strategy in the, uh, in the chronic disease and chronic pain world, but just in a regular, you know, anti-aging, like let's try to stay as healthy as we can for as long as possible. Yeah. Cause kind of breaking down aging a little bit, it's just, uh, it's inflammation of cells in, in a way, and in those cells end up dying and, or oxidizing. And, and so that's just like a very layman's kind of, yeah, yeah. It, but, but that's kind of putting it in, in the layman's terms for everyone that's listening is just like, that's probably, I mean, could you put it in a better way f- like that would, yeah. that would be, that would be for, for just a regular listener. Yeah. Um, so aging is a natural progression of, of humans, right? We, at, from the second you are born, you are aging and, uh, there are things that can speed up that aging and there are things that can make aging feel worse. And that's really, in my opinion, where inflammation comes in. Inflammation is going to speed up the aging process and it's going to speed up the effects of the aging process and so that's where we see you know people who don't take care of their bodies where they're having you know knee replacement at 50 because of severe osteoarthritis that started in their 20s because they they weren't living an active lifestyle they didn't really pay attention to their sleep habits their nutritional habits stress management all of these things. Um, and, uh, there's now there's ways that we can stop, pause and think about, Hey, what can we do to reduce the inflammation burden? So that way we don't want age as quickly and two, uh, feel the effects uh, of aging as much, which is going to be our, our aches, pains, and, uh, everything else that a lot of, you know, the elderly population is dealing with. Do you think glutathione injections are a suitable, therapy for just reducing inflammation long-term? 
Uh, yes, as long as they're paired with uh, the cofactors that go with that. So uh, one of the uh, important things on a biochemical standpoint is that if you put something like glutathione into the system, that glutathione does things and also gets recycled. And so in the process of it doing things and getting recycled, it uses vitamins and minerals, which are the coenzymes and cofactors for all of those processes. So um, what really bothers me is these pop-up IV clinics where they will go and they'll just, you know, have a, a glutathione push or a glutathione bag, but they're not doing any supportive nutrients with it. Things like uh, vitamin C, selenium, zinc, uh, B5, B6. Um, those are kind of the, the big, big, big ones. But then you've got all the other ancillary stuff that supports it. So then you've got your uh, your iodine, you've got all the rest of your B vitamins, you've got, uh, well, magnesium is actually a really, really big one for glutathione recycling. So um, a lot of these pop-up places or the places that are just in it to make a buck, they usually don't incorporate all these other things. And so over time, that can actually deplete you of those other things because you're now introducing a large source of glutathione and then you're burning through all this other stuff. And if you're not repleting it properly, then over a long period of time, and if you're getting a lot of these, you can actually tank your other vitamins and minerals. And so I th do think that uh, supporting glutathione production, which you can easily do with a lot of the cofactors that support the recycling of it. So mag, vitamin C, zinc, selenium, B5, B6, um, and then N-acetylcysteine or, or NAC, is actually the rate limiting step for us to produce glutathione. And so that in and of itself, those things from a supplement standpoint, I think does a lot of wonders for most people. They don't have to go get the IV bag. But uh, when we uh, have a situation where we need to, you know, introduce one, two, four grams of glutathione for therapeutic purpose, that can be helpful. Well, that makes me feel good. I, I was doing, I've been doing glutathione injections for about three months now. Okay. And I do, I supplement with all of those uh, vitamins daily. So I don't, I don't know how much I was taking the recommended daily value. Should I up that while I'm doing glutathione? Yeah. I mean, the recommended daily value is very, very uh, outdated <laughs> and <Yeah>. uh, poor. <laughs> so accurate. And it's like, it, and it's like, okay, it just looking at Josh, it's, it's just like, okay, you're not, you're not going to meet like you're not going to meet any of your standards if you just take the the recommended daily because one you have more muscle mass than than general population and that's I who the it's... recommended daily is for right. it's, not, right. it's not for us <laughs> yeah yeah and and the other thing too is that like it you know and, and this is a whole nother side discussion but soil quality and the amount of toxins that we have in us like the more toxins you put into the body the more that your body has to deal with that. And in the process of dealing with those toxins, you use up these vitamins, minerals as, as coenzymes and cofactors. And so we are at a more depleted state. And so the RDA is not sufficient to actually bring you to an optimal level. And if you also look, the, uh, the RDA is what minimum amount can we do so you don't get scurvy? So if, right. you're, if your whole goal in life is to not get scurvy, take the RDA of vitamin C and you'll probably <laughs> never have scurvy. But if you want to actually optimize vitamin C utilization 
as a huge antioxidant in your body as a way to support your immune system, as a way to support collagen synthesis, you're going to need to do more than just, you know, not get scurvy. That leads me to my uh, next question. So I've been experimenting with blood work for a couple of years now, and I feel like I have this medicine cabinet full of like at least 30 different, you know, vitamins. And, you know, I have to take 15,000 I use of vitamin D just to get up to the optimal level in my blood work. If even 5,000 I use a day, at least for me, it's still low. Right. So what strategies do you use? What strategies do you use with your patients for, for optimal supplementation? Um, uh, a very thorough history and then a really, really good in-depth uh, lab work. Um, I think... Uh, I think too many uh, functional medicine spaces um, focus on uh, just what's the optimal lab reference range. So let's let's take testosterone for for uh, as an example. You know, if you look at you know what are optimal testosterone levels, and you look into the uh, all of the different uh, institutes, you know, for functional medicine that you know that they teach this type of stuff, and they're going to give you a range. They're going to say, oh, optimal testosterone is, let's say, 700 to 900, or maybe we'll say 800 to, to 1,000. But what's the patient feel like? I've got patients. I, I have a patient right now who, on paper, his uh, testosterone looks totally fine. His total testosterone was 800. His free testosterone was upper range, and, but he has all the clinical symptoms of low testosterone, and we've ruled out everything else. He's got no thyroid issue. His vitamin D is looking great. He doesn't have B12 deficiency, no iron deficiency, anemia, nothing like that. So what did we do? We trialed him on a low-dose Clomid. Guess what? All of his symptoms are gone after four Damn. weeks of a low-dose Clomid. So, so that's one aspect of the spectrum is you, you might have normal labs or optimal labs, but you still might feel like crap because uh, the labs just show what's, what's in the blood. It's not actually showing what's going on inside the cells and your symptoms are based on cellular levels or genomic activation, for example, from a steroid hormone. And then the flip side is going to be true where people might feel awesome, but they might be walking around with a testosterone of 500. And some Joe Blow down the street might say, oh, you need to be on test sip. Let's get you on 200 milligrams a week because that's going to bump you right up to 1200. And now they've started, they get... Uh, irritability, maybe they start getting marital issues because they, you know, their testosterone is way too high for them. They start getting acne, like just all these things negatively happen because maybe their receptors were set up in such a way that 500 was a sweet spot for them. But the range is going to tell you it should be 700 if you want to be optimal. So I think that's the big, big thing is working, you know, for anybody listening is work with a doctor who understands this. I'm not a huge fan of the, the self-testing uh, platforms out there because I think they, they miss the point on this and they lead to people now taking 40 supplements for, you know, because, oh, this lab said this, so you have to take this supplement for this. This lab said this, so you have to take this supplement for this. And it just it is over-prescription of supplements. So work with a doc who really, really understands this stuff and, and cares about it uh, and can help guide pairing the labs with the actual clinical symptoms. That makes, uh, that makes a lot of sense. I, uh, I really 
think I should probably talk to you or Dr. Wood more about my supplementation instead of you're, taking the you're, uh, you're, shotgun you're, approach. You're doing, you're doing the self-testing? Uh, uh, no, I, okay. I actually, I've been getting, uh, I've been getting blood work done um, through a clinic out uh, that a friend owns out in uh, Florida. So, and, gotcha. but uh, um, yeah, it, they're definitely been trying to, to up the levels of, you know, the vitamins and stuff to, to get more optimal. Changing gears here, though, um, are you familiar with Ben Greenfield? Yep. Okay. So he did a podcast about a year ago, I think. He said he spent over $30,000. He had his entire body injected with uh, umbilical stem cells. And his telomeres reverse aged 20 years. Or that's the claim with the Mm -hmm. pre and post test. What is your... opinion of of that particular therapy and those claims so um if you uh if you take a deep dive on what the fda says about um allogeneic products their uh, blatant claim is that um you cannot have live stem cells uh, at this time transferred from one human to another in that type of capacity you obviously can for uh, different uh, bloodborne cancers and things like that, where you can get uh, umbilical cord treatments specifically for uh, cancer. And that actually has to come from a, usually a close relative um, uh, or you have to go through certain FDA pathways. So uh, as of right now, um, it is uh, illegal to have any stem cells in a vial. There's uh, a process and there's been loopholes that certain companies have gone through where uh, they basically file with the FDA to say, hey, we don't have stem cells in this product. And so I'm going to file this as a, a product, not a drug, because according to the FDA, if you have live stem cells in a vial and it is not for the very specific indications of like uh of cancer, a bloodborne cancer and things like that, you actually have to file that as a drug, which means you have to go through the same clinical trials that any other drug has to, which is phase one, two, and three clinical trials, just like metformin did, Viagra did, lisinopril, every single drug for the most part had to go through these three phases. Well, as of the date of this filming, no company has ever done that. There is no drug on the market that has live stem cells to be used for intravenous use, to be used for orthopedic injections, uh, anything to that degree. So a lot of these companies- Right, yeah, this is is in the US, right? Uh, Other countries are different. So uh, these companies have uh, filed claims with the FDA saying, hey, no stem cells here, no stem cells here. And then they turn around and they tell every single rep that they have that they have stem cells in their product. And they tell uh, all of their patients that they have stem cells in their product. And they advertise to all the doctors that they have stem cells in their product. Um, my personal belief is that um, there are probably some of those companies that actually do have stem cells in their products. Um, the, uh, the tricky part is that all of the companies, I've never come across a single company that has ever actually shown the criteria for stem cell in their product. 
So the uh, International Society for Cellular Therapy uh, back in, I believe it was 2012, released guidelines to say, if you want to call something a mesenchymal stem cell, you have to have this criteria. You have to show this, 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 and this, and here's how you can show that. Every single company that has ever reached out to me saying, hey, you want to buy our stem cells in a vial? I ask for that information. They give me an information, a scientific packet, um, but they uh, either they don't do things properly. So their flow cytometry, which is basically a fancy way of looking at what's in stuff, it's not done properly. Um, or uh, they do bait and switch. Uh, they will show you that, oh, here's, here's our markers for stem cells, and then very fine print at the bottom it will say from fresh sample. So this is what's happening. They're getting a fresh sample of umbilical cord blood. They run a sample on that fresh sample. Well, of course there is stem cells in umbilical cord blood. So they're gonna show that they're stem cells. Then they take it, then they process it, then they freeze it, then they do a whole bunch of stuff to it and there's no stem cells left in it at the end. It's all, they're all dead. They're all dead. You have to strategically do things to save and preserve these stem cells or they're going to die. So they all die, but then they walk around and they say, oh no, but look at our data. We have live stem cells. Well, you did before you processed it. So shady. But one more layer to this conversation is there are still a lot of growth factors and other signaling molecules that survive because they're not living cells. And so a lot of people, because one of the claims or the, the rebuttals is, oh, but I had this injection and I have no more knee pain. Great. You just basically had a very, very expensive PRP injection. You had a growth factor and a cytokine injection that helped your pain. You didn't have live stem cells injected into your knee. That's, is that's that the problem? Is that the problem with most of the exosome products as well? What are the ad advantages to exosomes? So exosomes are, are a little bit, are slightly different. So um, an exosome is, uh, for those of your listeners who aren't aware, are basically, it's a little package. Uh, think of it as a piece of mail, a little package that a stem cell sends out to other cells to kind of tell it what to do. So uh, if I'm a stem cell, I walk into a, a, a degenerative environment. So I'm put inside of a knee joint. I then have these finger-like projections that I can sense kind of what's going on. So I can go, okay, I'm sensing a lot of inflammation here. So I'm going to tell all the other cells in this area to upregulate their genes for anti-inflammatory genes. In order to do that, in order to send them that message, they have to send a piece of mail. They send out exosomes as one of the things that they do. And so exosomes are not technically cells. They are acellular products. But the FDA classifies them as a drug because the, um, in the process of making the exosomes, you have to take stem cells, place them in a bioreactor, and it's that process that the FDA says, hey, this is a drug and you need to file as a drug, not just a product. And so um, exosomes, the ones on the market right now, they are exosomes. Like there's no debate on that. There's still no live stem cells in there. And there's uh, advantage and disadvantage to that. But the FDA is still kind of saying, hey, you know, this is a drug. And so, you know, um, they've uh, issued some warnings and things like that to, to different clinics uh, and 
uh, uh, different manufacturers and, and things are going to change here uh, November 1st when they start releasing some uh, guidance documents on these new therapies. Uh, but the exosomes can be uh, hugely beneficial, but again, it's still right now a super great area because the FDA says, hey, these are actually, they should be drugs and you've got people who are using them and they haven't gone through proper clinical trials. So it's a good thing I went ahead and got it done before November. <laughs> A lot of that's the approach that a lot of uh, clinics and patients are taking. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. So where do you see this industry going? What, you know, I got, this is a two, two bar question. Where do you see yourself personally going with this? What's, why do you do this? And this is a big question, but then also on the tail end, where do you see the industry of regenerative medicine going and, and, you know, you're right along with it. So um, I'll answer those questions in reverse because I think that will help uh, frame things up. Um, I think it's going to be a, uh, a long journey, but I do think eventually that these therapies will be covered by insurance because right now most of them are not. You can find some obscure uh, you know, insurance providers uh, and things like that where you can get things covered. Um, you've also got a lot of clinics doing shady, shady things with their medical billing to get it covered for patients. Um, but eventually over time, I do think that there are going to be indications for these therapies. However, I still think there's going to be huge limitations with that because um, we're in this medical society right now where all of these treatments are based off of imaging. You go in, you have knee pain, you get an x-ray, you've got knee osteoarthritis. So now you are approved for uh, cortisone and or hyaluronic injections into the knee joint. That's it. That's it. They're not doing anything else. They're just putting it in the knee joint and that's it. Where a lot of the times patients with knee osteoarthritis, they have pain coming from other structures. You got the infrapatellar branch of saphenous, which is a huge, huge one if anybody's got medial knee pain. You've also got the coronary ligaments, which are commonly damaged when you have a meniscus injury. So if you just inject inside the knee joint, you're not going to get the ligaments that attach the meniscus onto the tibia. You've got the MCL, the LCL, you've got the patellar tendon, you've got the infrapatellar fat pad. All of these things can cause pain, but you're only getting those injections into a knee joint and that's it. And so I'm afraid that the industry is just going to replace PRP with the steroid, which will be a good thing. I'm, I'm all for that. And I think that's going to be great, right? If we can, even if we can just replace it, I don't think it's the best model, but it's still better than steroids going in a joint. But where I think it's still going to lack is the art of these injections, which is how do I find out what structures are contributing to my patient's pain, which I'll tell you 90% of the time I'm making my diagnosis based off of me talking to the patient. That's called the history and me putting patients through different uh, maneuvers, orthopedic tests, neurological tests, muscle tests. That's the physical exam in certain in 10% of the time I'll use imaging, but my, my success rates are such that I don't ever step back and go, Oh man, I'm really missing something. Maybe I should do more imaging. No, my success rates are, are very, very good because I'm really selective and I'm thorough in my physical exam to have an understanding of, oh, it hurts when I push right on this nerve and there's nothing else there. Well, that's not going to show up on an MRI. That's not going to show up on an x-ray, that's for sure. But we treat that and, and patients get better. And so 
I have a feeling that even as the uh, the industry moves towards um, having uh, some of these things covered by insurance, if they don't release some of the restrictions on uh, the indications or the uh, the ability to do more things during that procedure, then I will likely still continue down the exact same path I am, which is heavily cash focused base. on cash base and you know actually taking more time with patients to figure out what's going on so that I can get them the results that that they want. Gotcha. And uh, where can someone? find you or where can someone, you know, if they're not close to Arizona, how do they make sure they don't go to one of these shady clinics and get scammed? Uh, um, First thing, if they tell you that they have stem cells and they don't get it from your bone marrow or your adipose tissue, that's probably a big red flag that you can turn the other direction. Um, uh, Maybe if someone's listening to this years down the road, uh, if this is such a great hit podcast, that might be different. But as of right now, that's a big red flag to uh, uh, turn around uh, and go the other way. Um, and then it's it's so hard for me to answer that question because um, what it really comes down to is finding a doctor who cares. And I have struggled to find um, a way to tell people how to figure that out, except for you, you just have to, you have to, you have to ask, you got to look into them. You, you know, social media is a great tool right now for uh, people to kind of look into that. What I've noticed, and now I'm biased because um, I put out a lot of social media content and I care. So that's my kind of lens framework on, I'm like, well, if other doctors care, and I've seen this across other with other physicians, the ones that I know personally, the ones that care are generally more likely to put out good social media content where they're actually trying to educate. If you look at somebody's social media and all it is is just advertising for you going to see them, maybe they're more concerned about their dollars than they are concerned about helping uh, and not saying they don't want to help because I don't want to Uh, make it seem like people don't care. But I I just think there's a different layer. There's, there's a layer that you're a healthcare provider, and you like to and you want to help. And then there's the layer, I think above that, which is really needed for, you know, some of these patients who are in a lot of chronic pain. And, you know, I'm not a cheap date, you know, to come see me and get injections, you're looking at anywhere minimum a thousand bucks, upwards of $25,000, for a procedure. So, you know what I mean? You don't want to just go to somebody who does it. You want to go to somebody who uh, cares. It's their passion. Um, the other thing I've noticed is that uh, you really want to work with somebody who, who focuses, like their focus is injection therapy, regenerative medicine, not something else they do. There's a lot of people out there who, you know, um, or and even in the uh, we see it a bit more in the naturopathic world because we are kindly we're generally trained more as primary care docs and and we don't have the silos that the MD world has. Um, but you might find somebody who you know oh they'll work with you on weight loss and hormones and chronic infections and uh, regenerative medicine and stem cell therapy and um, and gynecological issues and it's just like whoa, how, how are you specializing in any of those things? And 
again, I'm not bashing those doctors because those doctors still get good results with their patients. But I, what I'm trying to convey here is if you are the type to look for, I want to work with someone who's really, really good. You got to, you got to find somebody who they focus on that uh, intentionally. Yeah, real quick, what would you recommend on, uh, on, you know, sleep and ensuring that you get good sleep? Because I noticed on your website that you you pinned blue walking glasses. Like, is that something that you invested into your sleep routine? And do you recommend that for all of your patients? Yeah, almost every single patient. Uh, there's general, very nice. <laughs> <laughs> Trevor just like put it. his glasses on. His blue glasses. Felix Gray's. Yeah, Felix Grace. Nice. Um, as a general rule, uh, uh, light um, reduction, or I should say light manipulation, uh, is a huge, huge thing that I incorporate in my practice with patients and myself personally. So one that comes with light reduction in the evening. And some of my, some of my patients choose to go the blue light blocking route. I don't think you have to. I think you can actually just reduce the amount of light in your home. And that will in and of itself help to stimulate more melatonin production and help you get a more restful sleep. And that can be as simple as turning off half the lights in your house after the sun goes down. You just, a lot of people are sitting there, it's eight o'clock at night and they have all the lights on in their living room, in their kitchen, in their dining room, and they're watching TV. It's like, turn those off. Like try to tell your body that it's nighttime outside. Um, and then also with uh, morning sunlight, a lot of people are not getting that enough exposure to morning sunlight within that first 30 minutes of waking to tell them, hey, it's daytime, you should probably make some cortisol. Um, and so uh, light manipulation is a, is a huge, huge thing. Um, stress management, uh, for sure, you know, and that could just be something as, hey, maybe an hour before bed, you just stop working and you read a book or you do some form of meditation or nasal breathing or play with your kids, like just certain things that can help uh, take us away from the screen time and the, uh, the, in, the focused activities that we sometimes get lost in, you know, uh, especially if someone's an entrepreneur or they're trying to start a side hustle or something, right? Working those super late hours. Um, and then we can always play around with different uh, different supplements, things like uh, theanine, phosphatidylserine, uh, obviously melatonin, uh, magnolia bark, passion flower, all these things can be really helpful at uh, helping patients to sleep. Um, and then caffeine, I mean, exercising caffeine. So uh, reducing caffeine in the afternoon, um, or having people shift it to earlier, and then exercising at some point during the day, preferably earlier in the day to build up that adenosine, which uh, helps with some of that sleep pressure, which again, just goes back to, to sleeping better. It sounds like we could do about 10 podcasts. Uh, <laughs> with all this information. Dave, do you have anything to add? Uh, no, I'm good. <laughs> so, man, he's got, he's, he just, uh, I, I'm sitting here taking notes of what to look up. Cause I didn't understand half of that, but, but I'm good. <laughs> he's ready to put on his blue blocking glasses. Awesome. So, um, if people want to reach out to you and, uh, and get a hold of you, um, where, where should they reach out to you? I know you're pretty, uh, active on social media. Um, do you have anything you want to plug? I know you have 
uh, partnership with TaylorMade. I have been using your link for their BPC-157. Appreciate that. Oral capsules. Um, that's definitely been, been helping me out. I'm going to have to talk to you about the... Don't if I, I'm not going to know if I said this right. I don't even know. Until you said it, I'd never heard of it. Den, Destodogen. Destogen. I don't sound like an idiot on that part. <laughs> I, I think we just should just sit here and have you continue to try until you get it right. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a plan. I'm sure the audience would love that. But you said they have uh, a link on TaylorMade. I'll probably have to get a prescription from you or something to get that product. So. Yeah, that, that, one's a, that one's a drug. So that's definitely a, uh, a prescription only. Yeah. Gotcha. And, and yeah. gosh, I'll, well, I'll, uh, I'll follow up with you on that one. Um, so what, what's the best way to contact you for our listeners? Uh, Instagram is, is my most active platform. So that's at regenerative performance. Um, and I, uh, respond to just about every DM, uh, unless it's, uh, absolutely ridiculous, then I don't, but, uh, I, uh, pretty active there. Um, but I'm across almost all platforms, YouTube, TikTok of all places, TikTok, uh, you know, uh, Twitter, we Facebook. Will, we'll post all of those links in the show notes and then we'll also post it on our Instagram. Do you have anything it. you want to add Dr. Timmermans? Uh, I appreciate, uh, you guys having me on here and anyone suffering in chronic pain, just don't give up. Just look for your next thing, you know? Uh, Gary V said it uh, well, and I've adapted it that uh, he has an idea that you're always one at bat away from blowing up uh, in your entrepreneur game. And I think the same thing in, in the pain management world, you're always one at bat away from finding the thing that actually gets you out of pain relief. And so you just got to keep at it and keep moving. That speaks directly to this guy right here. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. I hope it speaks to our listeners. If you guys want to find Blue Collar Fitness, you can find us at Blue Collar Fitness Podcast uh, website. You can find us at the Blue Collar Fitness Podcast on Instagram. You can find me at Sarge Josh on Instagram. You can find Dave at uh, Dave Shep Consulting. Connor. Connor Burton Training and ConnorBurtonTraining.com. And all the way out in Colorado, Trevor. T Chase Powers on Instagram. All right. We love you guys. We're out.